0: closure. I'm Robin Farzad.
1: The fact that it was done in a way that was so much more heartbreaking than it ever needed to be by leaving a vacuum, by not taking ownership, by not taking responsibility for what was happening in the vacuum that was immediately left post-Saddam, we will be paying for that for a very long time.
0: That's Gail Tamaqliman. New York Times bestselling author, two times, and senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's been in every big publication you can think of. She's consulted for the World Bank, TED Talks, entrepreneurship, television, radio, and now in the very apotheosis of her storied career, she is our featured guest on Full Disclosure. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by the support of our friends at Elwood Thompson's. For more than a quarter century, imagine that, rocking it at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Virginia. I've told you many times about the amazing breakfast, the jazz dinners, the brunch, uh, the beat, unbelievable Indian Wednesdays, Mexican Thursdays, I believe... Uh, great foods on Fridays, and if I practice what I preach, I'm certainly there almost every other day. Visit them at the top of Carytown, the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from California, which I believe is the sixth biggest economy on the planet, the Republic of California is Gail Samak Laman, New York Times best selling author twice and senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Did I miss anything at the very
1: top? No, you are good.
0: Please tell us the title of your two best-selling books.
1: Uh, The first one is called The Dressmaker of Karkana, which is about a teenage girl who started a business that supported her family and her neighborhood under the Taliban. And the other? The other one is Ashley's War, which is about uh, an all-women special operations team that was recruited for Army Ranger and Navy SEAL special operations missions back in 2011. Uh, while women officially were banned from ground combat.
0: Now, my first book, Shameless Plug, is going to come out in October. I have to tell you, like like many other authors, I hate the process of writing. It's so solitary (laughs) and fraught with doubt and and anxiety and even borderline depression. But I love being known as a writer. How was it for you? (laughs)
1: I, You know what? I love the writing process. I am very uh, good at distracting myself. So, you know, uh, if I have to answer this email or one of my uh, little people comes in or, you know, then I'll deal with that uh, happily. But once I can actually turn everything off and lock my door and just start writing, I-, I love it. I think maybe it's the only child in me. You're in your head so much as a kid anyway. That, you know, to me, the writing process is just like this journey where you learn as you see what you write and put on the page.
0: Tell me about uh, where we very nearly cross paths at Harvard Business School. Um, this is, I mean, this is unbelievable to me. You covered public policy issues at ABC News, what, in the late 90s and early aughts? I did, aughts. yeah. I
1: covered the impeachment of President Bill Clinton. I you covered the 2000 with, campaign. You yeah, worked with George
0: Stephanopoulos and the like. I did. And, and you were that rare other... And Mark Halpern. And Mark Halpern and that rare other journalist who went to business school to become... So I mean, you morphed into something. I, I can't quite place it. If you have to tell somebody in an elevator what you do for a living, I mean, you say think influencer, thought leader, jet setter? What is it?
1: You know, I, I think I am somebody who writes stories that connects people to their world and their wars.
0: Which we have many of in this yeah, world. Yeah,
1: right now. So, I mean, that lets you do both the foreign policy, national security kind of think tank thing and also really tell stories that I think are relevant to what is happening in our moment. And in the, in the process of writing about economic development and entrepreneurship and um, the grace and grit of people in some of the toughest parts of the world, I really did become kind of obsessed with connecting this country back to its post 9-11 wars because less than 1% Uh, This country has fought 100% of its wars for 16 years with very few people noticing. And telling those stories and, and bringing national security, which sounds fancy and imposing, right, if it's not what you do every day, into very human terms is really the challenge.
0: I do want to be indulgent for a minute and talk about your reinvention to the extent you do lecture (laughs) on entrepreneurship. I mean, a a, a lot of, I mean, there are journalists who go to business school to come out and rebrand as something else, Uh, maybe to go into marketing or, or, uh, gosh, they tried to, you know, get me into brand management or lobbying. Correct. Uh, what did you, I know that the perception, I mean, Disney Historically, you know, the, the parent of ABC News has been known as a, you know, it's a great storied place. Uh, but it was it was experiencing turbulence, and there was, was huge turnover and layoffs, and uh, it wasn't exactly the profit center. It was kind of the loss leader, and well, ESPN right, was was news racking in general,
1: it in general, right? News right. Is, is until very recently. News has largely been a cost center for a lot of people. And the whole reason I went to business school was because you could kind of see the direction that daily news was going uh, and that the internet was really driving it toward, which was the chase for clicks and doing stories I didn't actually think um, meant very much to me personally. And I wanted to understand economic development. I wanted to understand capital flows. I wanted to understand how people create hope and opportunity and jobs and kind of why the world works the way it does. And so I thought I was going to go to law school. And, and it's interesting because I'm working on a book now about the people I grew up with. Uh, but I think uh, for me, I didn't know growing up people who had graduated from college, uh, let alone gone to graduate school. And so the whole idea of graduate school was kind of this mythical thing. So I went to look at Harvard Law in the middle of the 2000 campaign, and I realized in about, I think, probably 95 seconds that that was not for me.
0: Oh, yeah. I still have an unopened LSAT kit from 1998. (laughs) I
1: kid you not. I didn't
0: know what I wanted to do when I graduated from college. And so I walked into the Princeton Review and it's, it's sitting somewhere in my self-storage, 1998. You should
1: definitely be eBaying (laughs) or Amazoning that right now, I feel like. I just, Um, I just
0: couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And for many kind of in our generation, you thought, okay, I could use law school. It's the ultimate scalable degree. I can go into, to, to, you know, human rights, justice issues. I can get a not-for-profit grant, but you know, to what end? You have to sell your soul and and your time for five or six years to pay off the debt.
1: Well, and and listen, you know, people could say that about business school too, right? Um, But I think what it's a fit thing. I mean, I walked into law school and I was like, oh, no, no, (laughs) I can't. I won't even last uh, an afternoon here. Um, I don't have the attention span for this. I'm watching students play solitaire on their computers. And I'm not going into debt to play solitaire on my laptop. And so then I went to the Kennedy School, but I was coming from working. I mean, literally, this is like my physical path on this visit to Harvard, which was this mythical place in my mind. And I went to the Kennedy School and I realized immediately this was already what I was doing. You know, I had come from Washington from covering politics and public policy. I was working for Mark Halperin uh, and then for George Stephanopoulos, the first year he took uh, over the Sunday show this week. Um, so, I, you know, there was not a real urgency for me to get a policy degree when I was coming from that world. And so then I said, well, I'm never going to business school, but let me just go see what's going on over there. And I swear, Robin, the first moment I walked in, first of all, everyone's well-dressed and focused. That was the first thing that struck me about this incredibly fancy Spangler Hall at Harvard Business School. And and I started asked, interviewing people, students, and what are you doing here? What kind of things can you learn? I knew nothing about business school. And I said, you know, I, here's my interest. And they were like, well, why wouldn't you? come here. This makes much more sense than going to law school or anything else. And and that was really my first introduction to the idea of going to business school.
0: You know, I've been consistent in the 12 years since I graduated from business school. The favorite, the single favorite aspect of my HBS experience was what? Let's see if you can name it.
1: The sushi chef.
0: Close. Very close. <laughs> The yogurt parfait at Spangler. Nothing has matched that experience. You since. know that the HBS
1: media is going to be calling you and yelling about this segment I have right a now. Good, I
0: have a good trolling relationship with them, you know, uh, twelve years after. Like they sometimes ask me like what's been the most memorable part that's kind of that's followed you. I was like, my student debt. <laughs> you know
1: what yes. Oh yeah, I have that too. Absolutely. I will say I, though, I'm very good friends with mine as well. But I loved it. I but not at first. Oh my gosh. Do you know, Robin? And I went to Tom,
0: technology operations. Oh Tell me God. about that. I,
1: I went for let's just back up even to admitted students weekend. Analytics. So I, <laughs> seriously? I said to somebody so that, you know, somebody who was clearly already gunning for business school from the time they were eleven said to me, Well, why are you coming to business school at Admitted Students Weekend? And I said, Well, you know, I'm really interested in economic development and entrepreneurship and and, and how it can uh, help fight poverty and how you can think about the world in terms of, you know, the way that the world is shaping up which, with income inequality. And I mean, this person looked at me, I have no idea what it was. Like I had just started speaking Latin. Uh, and, <laughs> and I said, well, I said, well, I said well, what about you? And he said, well, I'm here for banking," And I said, But I thought internet banking was dead.
0: Oh, no. Yeah, back then, <laughs> that after the, the after that the, the early end. after the recession of the early 2000s, they said B2B was back to banking and <laughs> B2C was back to consulting. But I digress. I mean, you were also a Fulbright scholar, a Robert Bosch Fellow, and a member of the Bretton Woods Committee. Um, it's quite uh, an eclectic uh, potluck resume of yours, and that's why you're so fascinating to have on the show. I do want to. I do want to ask you. Kind
1: potluck. Of, I feel like that's a. There's a you know slightly negative. Connotation no, there's, there's nothing there, ne- right?
0: ne- negative in that. I <laughs> um, feel like if you had me over for dinner. Dinner, there would be some Mexican in the corner, there would be tabbouleh in that corner. <laughs> You'd make me a vegan burger. I anyway, just I I do, I mean, you cover you cover very serious things. And you, you know, yeah. to step back for a minute, we have been in this perpetual state of yes. war writ yeah. large in the Middle East now for let's say sixteen years. I was there in New York on nine-eleven on the mm-hmm. on the morning of September eleventh, I was on the To express train down to Wall Street. And I just remember, you know, when I was finally pushed back in the car and and everybody said, just keep taking it down to Brooklyn and watching it all transpire in that gorgeously clear morning from Brooklyn Heights. As I, as I saw the towers, I was wondering, just really, you knew that this was the world was going to change irrevocably. I don't yeah. know who we were going to attack, who was responsible for this. A nation state doesn't do it. And so you have the enormously difficult problem of, well, Bush ran, you remember covering the campaign, he did not believe in nation building. Yeah. And yet we we took down two dictatorships, if you will, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, without a plausible kind of end game or something to fill in that vacuum. And we're still trying to figure both out a decade and a half afterwards. <laughs>
1: You know, you have caught the story. You know, what I have tried to build a career focused on is bringing attention and the spotlight to places and people and ideas, I think, are A, world-changing, and B, people should really understand in more depth in human terms. And these post-9-11 wars, you know, the dressmaker we didn't put Afghanistan in the title because it was really trying to make the very personal universal, which is about what you do when your back is against the wall, right? Whatever the circumstances are. And to me, uh, this whole idea that nation building is a 14 letter word that has become a four letter word is a failure of communication and leadership from the top across administrations. This is not at all a partisan statement. Because I don't think we have leveled with the American public about what these wars entail, what they will require, and also who these people are, who really are moms and dads in all these countries fighting for a better future. And it is, of course, more complicated than that. But we never meet the people who share our values and the people who are really just working for their kid to have a shot at getting educated and doing a little bit better than they did. And that to me is a huge gap and it's a loss for the American public because those people exist and exist in in abundance. And if we don't get stability right, if we don't invest with uh, alongside, I'm not saying American led, but American uh, supported uh, stability and stabilization, then we will find ourselves in an endless loop where we leave, a vacuum ensues, neg- you know, very bad players come in and use the vacuum for their own benefit. It gets bad enough that then American forces start paying attention. It gets bad enough that then American political leaders say, you know what, an attack on the homeland might be planned here or this could really affect us. And then you reach a point where you have American uh, special operations and conventional forces sent back in. And so, why not help get governance right and stability right in the first place? This is
0: what blows my mind, though. Let's let's think back on this a bit, and it gets into some you know defense and national security inside baseball. But after all, you do write on national security and foreign policy for uh, Defense One, which I believe is part of of the Atlantic, Atlantic Media Group. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, I remember in in Middle Eastern studies in college when we all asked why George Bush forty one. Uh, did not finish the job in the first Gulf War, Um, everybody would answer reflexively that you just did not want to create that atrocious vacuum. I mean, Iraq is a product of colonialization and, and white men and corrupt kingdoms kind of drawing unnatural borders and putting, you know, much like Syria, where you have a person in the minority in control ruling with an iron fist. So, we needed an sob like Saddam Hussein, who even gassed the Kurds in the late '80s, to stay there to keep this artificial construct together. I'm amazed that a person like Don Rumsfeld, who was, you know, it's a a, a brilliant businessman in any respects. He was a pharmaceutical CEO. He ran a, yeah. a, a cable box company. Um, he comes in there and and he looks like a genius at first, but they so vastly miscalculated a kind of the, the governance thing of this you don't just i just remember him giving that that flip press conference this is what free people do um yeah. and you you go to war with the army you have <laughs> But that is our responsibility. I mean, we, we created that atrocious vacuum, which well, led right. to, and, and Colin led to Powell talked
1: about that at the time, right? And he, I was,
0: mean, he was lampooned, and yeah, there was, a, there was yeah. a war between defense and, and state over that. But it's so unbelievable to me. The conventional wisdom, I remember when, when Baghdad fell and people were, were hitting the Saddam Hussein statues with their sandals. You're like, wow, yes, this is freedom and everything, but it was so wrong. How did they not plan for the very fundamental... Um, you know, this is how an operation is done. You don't leave yeah. a wound to fester. You don't, you don't, you don't not suture it up.
1: Well, and it's interesting. I, you know, you talk to people who were in office back then and they said we had plans, but nobody executed them. And, you know, you can have lots of conversations about this, but what is clear is that the people who suffered are moms and dads who sh- who could not even leave the house. And what it unleashed in that vacuum is something that, you know, I think American military leaders spend a great deal of time looking at and thinking about. And, you know, in many ways, I wish the American public at uh, least really think about what that meant. But I do think, look, we're a country that hasn't really reckoned with its wars because we haven't felt them. And part of why we haven't felt them is that it's such a sliver of the population that puts on a uniform and goes. So it almost feels costless, but war is deeply personal. And it's personal to all of the people on whose territory is being fought and to all of the people in this country who go and fight it. And that is, I think, the challenge, is making that uh, deeply personal to people who will never go to Iraq or Afghanistan and don't need to, but who I think I truly believe is a part of our democracy, need to understand what is being done in their names. And I think this is a very fundamentally nonpartisan issue.
0: But to take it back to the idea of nation building, which again was at the turn of the century verboten and something
1: that that
0: Bush 43 ran against, it's just not what I do until the situation was was put into his lap. Um, Do you, I just have to wonder, I have to pose the question, and I'm I'm sure you're asked in, in parenthetical terms, was Iraq better off under Saddam Hussein?
1: I, and you know, I always avoid this question because of the peril of counterfactuals. But there is no question that what happened and the vacuum that was left behind created peril and danger, not just for Iraqis, but for well beyond because it was handled in, my believe, a deeply problematic way.
0: And I mean, that, that's a diplomatic way of answering it. But I guess the counterfactual <laughs> is, is the only way to keep something like a Humpty Dumpty you know Iraq together again we, we you accept that it's a colonial construct yeah you had a person and and you know we we armed Saddam Hussein against Iran yeah. um, we've we've had cold war issues where we've we've dealt with really nefarious regimes in Chile and Argentina and you know you name it just for for the sake of you know the kissingerian realpolitik in in the kind of the real world understanding of this That country was not a failed state under him. It was a menace. And I'm in no way an apologist for a person who's gassed his own people, who's had, you know, maniacal sons, who's who's who've raped women, who who personally joyed in watching political adversaries get tortured and mutilated. But now we're dealing with this kind of in parallel in in Syria, where you have seen a person gas his his people in spades. But the lesson of Iraq and, and ownership of one of these failed experiments is just too fresh in the American psyche for anybody to kind of roll up their sleeves and say, yes, let's go into Damascus.
1: Absolutely. And that's where nation building, I mean, you want to talk about um, nation building, getting its name. And, And, you know, I was talking recently to an army officer who was saying, look, like we understand how badly this was done and we're trying to really learn, but it's not easy. And it's not easy because the reality is the ghost of the Iraq war hangs over every decision made about Syria and certainly did under the Obama administration and continues to. Now, it is a deep scar on the American public's imagination. There is no question about that. And it has the fact that it was done, in my mind, in a way that was so much more heartbreaking than it ever needed to be. By leaving a vacuum, by not taking ownership, by not taking responsibility for what was happening in the vacuum that was immediately left post-Saddam, we will be paying for that for a very long time.
0: So what's what's haunting to me, and I'm thinking about the the, the famous documentary on the late Bob McNamara, what was it, Fog yeah, of War? Yeah,
1: Fog of War. Talking right.
0: about Vietnam and how that haunted a generation. Going back to your comments just a few minutes ago on how people back then felt a personal sacrifice. You knew someone who was lost yeah. To that war. And you hated the draft and you would burn your car and and pop culture reflected this just awful ordeal that was going on in the 60s and early 70s. And there was this groundswell for people to pull out. And that informed our policy for a generation. You, you know, Vietnam was synonymous yes. with quagmire. And That's now rock right. has become the kind of the postmodern. Vietnam. Well
1: but look at where we are now in Syria. So this is a little bit more of a foreign policy discussion than probably. But then, you know what? Audience. Let me
0: let me pause you for a minute. No, I, that's where I like to book guests like you, Gail Samakleman, which Excellent. gives me my, my billboard opportunity. We're talking to Gail Samakman, best selling author twice of the New York Times bestselling author and senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's holds forth on everything from entrepreneurship, Syria, Afghanistan. Uh, women in the military. And right now you and I are in, in the the very hairy part of the world. We're talking about right now Syria. And I'm thinking back to the Obama administration's red line. And I've just been yes. so eager to ask you, if is that that's something that that I feel from my vantage point where he said chemical weapons, you really cannot cross that line, Bashar al-Assad in this civil war. And he did. And we blinked. And now that there's been evidence that's been done multiple times since and Russia has filled that vacuum and the Trump administration apparently doesn't have any plans. No one wants to own this Syria problem.
1: No, Syria is a hot potato no one wants to catch. And the truth is, though, that the Trump administration was clear about, you know, they did react to this. And, And when you talk to Obama administration officials, I did a piece the night of the Syria strikes that the U.S. launched in April with quoting Obama administration officials saying, Thank goodness. Right, applauding the Trump administration for acting. And then that was not a minority viewpoint among particularly State Department officials. Yeah, who Hillary, worked Hillary on Clinton Syria.
0: has been a little more than outspoken on kind of, you know, I, I might have handled it differently.
1: Then exactly, then Obama. And the truth is, that it goes right back to what we were just talking about about Iraq, right? Uh, I think the Obama administration felt it had been elected, particularly the president himself, to end wars in the Middle East, not start them. And so, non intervention at, at nearly all costs from a ground troop more visibility level, because they did a, a lot with special operations and with drones. Uh, but Non-intervention on the ground troop side, on the very visible conventional military side, was something they felt strongly about. And, and he would have meeting after meeting where he would really ask his folks, you know, convince me that what you're asking me to do won't make things worse. OK, Gail, and the then, truth then what, is, what, what made
0: Libya different?
1: Oh, well, I think actually Libya came into the Syria argument as one more example of why. But I would argue Libya was in more, like in, in many ways like the post-Iraq thing, which is that you intervene, but then there's no appetite for stabilization. And that is where I think the threat is lost. And Libya was, Secretary Clinton, Sam Power, uh, making this argument, uh, among others, but certainly them. Uh, that that the intervention, that they were in favor of the intervention. And when that then turned to chaos, it was sort of one more proof point. Uh, And by the way, let's talk about Capitol Hill for a second. I know you talked about Congress uh, in some of these conversations before. No one in Congress wanted to give, when they went up to try to get authorization from the Obama administration in 2013 to Congress to try to get them to get behind the airstrikes, Democrats and Republicans alike were like, wait, 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 we just saw Libya.
0: Why are you going to do this? But why, you know, this gets into management theory again. A strong executive. Back to HBS. Can, see,
1: it all comes okay, back to Okay, but see, the
0: thing is, there are certain things a CEO, and again, it only fits the analogy so much, but the, the, the CEO only needs to bring in the board so many times, right? Um, I thought that it's a courtesy that you ask for congressional authorization, and it was my impression that it was almost a diffusion of responsibility, that he could say, oh, you know what? We got a signal from the Russians or John Kerry left an opening that if they agreed to give up their chemical weapons stockpile, which even in the end, ostensibly they didn't, that there is an opening for there to be a, a peaceful outcome to this. And that, to me, was, was putting faith in some sort of multilateralism that was not vindicated in the end.
1: But that was the, the That's the Obama worldview. From the very start, And when you talk to Obama administration officials, there were people who were with Syrian opposition leaders about to tell them about the strikes, who learned from TV, like everybody else, that the president was going to go to Congress. I mean, this was the president's decision, right? Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now, by no means is the Middle East, as much as, you know, people make this mistake and you're very familiar with it, especially in the Western eye and American eye. Africa is a monolith. Forget the fact right. that a thousand it's, languages are spoken. Yeah. The Middle East is a monolith. Forget. I have to tell people that Iranians, I was born in Iran, are not Arabs or Baha'i right. people are not Muslim or yeah. you know, Shiite and Sunni is a whole different, you know, chasm. Um you look at what happened in Egypt. You look at what happened in Syria, what continues to happen in Syria. In Iraq, mm-hmm. where there was traumatic intervention, is there yeah. any sort of hope for self-determination in the current Middle East?
1: Uh, it depends on who you talk to. Um, it does seem like things are likely to get worse before they get better, but... Uh, but, and, you know, I think a lot of people are looking to the Kurdish referendum that's been called for the fall to see what that will mean uh, and who that will uh, both please and anger. And I think it you are seeing a, a generational shakeout that has not come close to ending. And the thing that breaks my heart about it is that bonds and dads and entrepreneurs and teachers who will be caught in the crossfire of these. And, and and that is why I think remembering shared humanity and values in the middle of all this is really important because they're not nameless, faceless people, right? And and this upheaval that America is part of and, and is intervening in, right, to keep the homeland safe and for national security reasons, Um Is work, you know, the American effort involves a whole lot of people who are supporting the U.S. there uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, now in Syria. And I think we as a country should know these people.
0: Here's the $10 trillion question, kind of a meaning of life question. Whatever happened to the United Nations?
1: You saw you know, that wait, you
0: saw that Onion article where, you know, the health department had to bust in on 42nd Street in the East River, and they found this building with 5,000 cats and dereliction. Like, nobody knows what's going on there.
1: I know. And, you know, look, uh, the UN, Syria, I think, has exposed the very dramatic problems and challenges facing the UN. You know, it, I was watching for years the head of uh, UN refugees, who's now the head of the UN running out of adjectives to describe the humanitarian catastrophe in Syria and a security council that couldn't do anything because Russia would veto everything, right? Russia was all all in on the side of the Syrian regime and wouldn't allow anything uh, to go forward. And so I think it really exposed that the idea of a set of interests that were greater than one's nation uh, is being dramatically challenged at this moment.
0: Well, I don't. You know, is it because we are we are cornerstone members of NATO that we intervened in the in the Balkan wars where there was evidence of genocide? That's that. that you know, they were part of an alliance. Where I just think of Wesley Clark repelling down a mountain and, and yeah. saving people. Yeah, why, but remember why how is long isn't that, that took. Though why that isn't was that not an immediate applied, intervention. But why isn't the standard applied to genocide writ large? I know we are not the policemen of the world, but here's what's troubling to me, and it is a governance issue. It's a it's a it's a democratic humanitarian. Yeah governance issue. Who owns these things when they fall apart? Or do we just all kind of suck our thumbs and and look up in the air and say, it's not me?
1: Syria has been met with a global shrug. And that to me is devastating. But here's the reality. The American public does not have leadership that is going to say that American leadership matters. And we stand for uh, active intervention when there is uh, a genocide in the works. You know, the Obama administration created this genocide, uh, atrocities, prevention, you know, something around those words uh, that came to life. And the whole concept of responsibility to protect has been put to shame and been made to see just to look as hollow as it has become. Because there is no responsibility correct when little people are falling off balconies because they're being barrel bombed from their own government and their parents can't find a hospital to take them in. I mean that's the stakes of these conflicts. But there is not an appetite among American leaders to play that role. John McCain, Lindsey Graham, maybe Secretary Clinton, right? That that is the exception to that. But 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 Barack Obama did not want America to play that role. And President Obama really did not um, he he spoke a great deal about it and and he and he spoke beautifully about why these conflicts matter and why we should care, but he Again, really thought he was elected to end wars, not begin them.
0: Gail, talk to me about Iran. I remember also the conventional wisdom being in the in the wake of um, the attacks, uh, the, the retaliatory attacks following September 11th, both in, you know, Afghanistan and purportedly ir- Iraq was retaliation they claim that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction but regardless there were reactions they were billed as reactions to the attacks here in New York and in DC and in Pennsylvania um, the conventional wisdom again was that wow if you if you take out you know Afghanistan's regime if you take out Baghdad it's gonna put the huge screws to Tehran and they'll have to to, to come to the table and not be a rogue government anymore. I think 15 years after the fact, you can say that they've indeed been strengthened. They have a proxy regime in Baghdad that the, the Shiite government is in control there. There is a lot of admiration for the late Ayatollah Khomeini. There was a piece just written in the New York Times yes. about how yeah. the IRGC yeah. is has omnipotence in Iran. And and not just that, but Syria is a client state, is a Absolutely. proxy state. Iran had a huge hand in this story, amid all of the other things that have been written about, you know, the twenty sixteen election and, and all the other Michigas of the past year, people don't seem to realize that Iran had an enormous role. It's an indispensable ally to the minority dictator in charge of Syria to come in and brush back you know, not just ISIS, but the, the quasi-legitimate opposition.
1: So Oh, there's absolutely. I mean, look, if you want to look at a winner in this entire scenario of people in chaos, Iran would be among them, right? You know, a government that has very strong influence in, in Iraq, a Syrian client, right? I mean, you know, there would not still be an Assad regime if it were not for Iran and Russia, which have been all in on Assad's side from the very start. And that was always, you know, you talk to State Department folks in 2014, 2015, and they would say, you know, our guys, you know, these these sort of moderate forces that the State Department was, you know, many inside the State Department were in favor of supporting, you know, don't have a chance because there's an all-in Iran and Russia and Syrian regime against a U.S. that is one-quarter pregnant. Wow.
0: Wow. And I, I've, I've talked to people on the record who opposed um, the Iran sanctions relief under, you know, in the, in the final year of the Obama yeah. administration between Obama yeah. and Kerry, that that was almost a real politic calculus that we see this this, this scourge of ISIS, um, you know, Islamic State in the Levant um, and Sunni, Sunni terrorism spreading across the Middle East. And you had this firewall of Shiite Iran, which was, you, know, you could say it's nefarious and not helpful, but knows how to keep ISIS at bay. Um, do you believe any of that, that maybe that was a, a, a you know a, a calculus we made that one is just far less evil than the other?
1: Well, it's fascinating, right? Because uh, I was talking to State Department people as this was all happening, and they kept saying, listen, ISIS is not the cancer. ISIS is the symptom. And it is a symptom of the Assad regime. This was U.S. State Department folks. And... So you had a regime and, and a Syrian regime and then the Iranian leadership, which was able to make the most of that. Right. We have a common enemy and Russia as well. Right. We have a common enemy in Russia as it, excuse me, in ISIS, as it grows. And you don't want to mess with us because we're not nearly as bad as what's going to come next.
0: So, net net, if you draw if you draw draw a double bottom line, Iran has been an enormous beneficiary of the past fifteen years. That's correct. Which is something that I don't think many people could have foreseen. If you would have asked Donald Rumsfeld, um, you know, no one could have seen this extent of of um, the the disenfranchised Sunni, previously the majority, the people who ruled under Saddam Hussein, kind of getting into this amorphous ISIL group and marauding across the Middle East and you know, to torture metaphors, we really let this this kind of um, this disaster out of a bottle.
1: It was an unintended consequence of what Secretary Mattis just called the strategy free moment that we are in. And that is, I think, the real peril is that there has to be an overall strategy guiding American action. And and I don't think we have one at this moment.
0: Full disclosure, we're talking to Gail Samahleman. She's the New York Times bestselling author. And senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, fellow Harvard Business School grad. That's how I reached out to her. She's a Fulbright scholar, Robert Bosch Fellow, a member of the Bretton Woods committee. She was at ABC News' political unit for a long time. Uh, she now writes for Defense One. Um in the ten minutes or so we have left, let's let's open it up to you freestyle. And, and the beauty of having yeah. on someone like you is we could pivot into so many things entrepreneurship, real politic, uh defense, self determination. What is how the about biggest- television? Talk to me, do talk to me about anything also. you want right now in your eclectic potluck mind.
1: <laughs> um, you know, I think entrepreneurship is something i have been deeply passionate about, mostly because um, it's a way to look at job creation and the role of women and girls in this. You know, we just did a paper for the Council on Foreign Relations about how this whole fancy idea of inclusive growth, right, which is now post-Trump, post-Brexit, what uh, – economists are talking about. We need to include more people in economic growth. But that inclusive growth has to include women. Uh, And because oftentimes women are really left on the margins of that conversation. And in 90 out of 100 countries that the, uh, the international institutions studied, there are laws on the books bar women's economic participation in their own economies. Uh, what you know, there are nations where women cannot open bank accounts. There are na- on their own. There are nations where women cannot travel freely, uh, and all of these has real economic consequences. So we really are working to show. I was just in India, actually, doing interviews on uh, financial inclusion, which is another kind of fancy set of terms for helping people get bank accounts and access to financial services. And India has just had demonetization, right? And that is this whole kind of fascinating thing in itself. But it's gone in parallel with digitalization of a national ID system and a national mandate that everybody has this bank account. Okay. So I was interviewing a group of women uh, who were being trained in bank, how to open a bank account and how to make bank accounts work for them. And I said, how do you guys like having your thumb as your ATM card now? Uh, because, you know, you used to have an ATM card if you have a bank account and now with this national ID system, you use your thumbprint and all of these women stood, you know, showed me their thumbs and raised them really high in the air. And I said, really, why? And they said, because our husbands can't take our ATM card now. And that was. This is a whole wow. way of offering financial independence to women who have never really uh, experienced that before. So I think there is so much happening about the way women participate in their own economies, their own societies, from child marriage to financial inclusion. And I think it's a fascinating time.
0: Talk to me about how the smartphone and, and smart wireless networks broadly have, have helped that. I mean, I was shocked that there were projections, let's say, in the mid-90s that uh, you know, in terms of uh, development and civilization, that it would take this long for Nigeria to to provision telephone service to people. Uh, you know, not just in its big cities, but out in the out in the country and in the bush. And wireless completely changed that. And now people are using it for crop prediction and and um, you know uh, to 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 sell products and to predict weather. Um, to what extent is that kind of crossed with your observations?
1: Oh, I mean, very much so. Look at technology. I did a story in, in 2012 or something for Fast Company on Afghan tech startups. And these first group of young people who had written to, the it was either Washington or New York, because they wanted to be the first uh, Afghanistan chapter of the Association of Computer Machinists. And, you know, I called the guys in, uh, who ran uh, ACM, the Computer Machinist Group, and I said, were you surprised when you got that application? And they said, oh, we thought it was a prank. And then we looked a little closer and we're like, oh, wait, these guys are serious. How awesome is that? Uh, And so, you know, now we have a story recently with the Afghan girl robotics team, this all girls robotics team. And it didn't surprise me at all. And I think it really, I just did a CNN piece, uh, you know, for them about how this is really another side of Afghanistan, a young generation that wants to be connected to the outside world, that's pushing for progress, that's pushing for education, that's pushing for something better, and technology is very much a part of that. And mm-hmm. you see it.
0: So tell me, finally, in closing, what do you do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, to get down to brass tacks, how do you yeah. how do you make ends meet? I mean, this is you're putting your faith in the fact that as a person that's this kind of Uber Uber public, you have every channel covered, from radio, from this here aspirational. Broadcast, which is right yes. up there with Charlie Rose. I mean, you can't compete Absolutely. with us. Um, book writing, best selling books. What I mean, I, I want you to give your advice to other entrepreneurs out there, creatives like like you and I, who are coming into a place like Harvard Business School or, or outside yeah. the world. I mean, everybody who listens to this show and says, "I need to reinvent right now," and she yeah. reinvented magnificently.
1: Well, you are very gracious. Uh, I would say this: one is, it's always a work in progress. You know, I mean, what I'm doing now is not necessarily what I'll be doing six months from now. And it's always a question to me of where do you make a difference and make a living? And I have been incredibly fortunate. I've been really blessed in that I have been able to, you know, take care of my family and also put ideas out in the world that have been commercially viable. Um, And I also love to work. You know, I was raised by a single mom who worked two jobs. Uh, I was raised in a community of single moms, and everybody worked really hard. So I think I grew up just as that example of, you know, get it done. There's no drama needed, there's no discussion needed. And I have the privilege of doing work that I truly believe in. Not my, you know, my mom didn't want to go to the phone company every day and be a service representative. So I always remember that, you know, I write books, I have a think tank role, I uh, do some consulting in the private sector side, I give speeches, uh, I write, I'm about to, I'm really excited, you're actually the first time I've publicly talked about, uh, we're about to, uh, to become a CNN contributor, and, you know, this is all, to me, it's all a privilege of being able to put ideas out in the world and to be an idea entrepreneur who is who is not divorced from the fact that it's not enough to follow your passion. You also have to pay your rent. And I don't think we talk about that enough. And it then becomes a leisure class activity to do work you believe in.
0: GT Lemon. I'd like to call you that now. I'd <laughs> like to see that byline. Gail Tavac Lemon, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, the author of New York Times bestsellers, Ashley's War and the dressmakers of Hayerkana. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Both prolifically available on Amazon and on fine sites. And if anybody Googles you, they'll, they'll get to your name or the AspenSecurityForum.org. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Full disclosure, we are on NPR One. Like us. No, you know what? I need to be loved And on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, you can follow us at FullDRadio. By the way, I am woefully underfollowed. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.